Today, we welcome husband and wife ultra athletes, Jeray Moore and Leah Gruen, for a candid conversation about training, nutrition, planning, and the community that surrounds the world of winter cycling, and specifically the Iditarod Trail Invitational. Stories from the trail, tips for beginners and seasoned athletes alike, and inspiration for anyone looking to challenge themselves with new activities outdoors or anywhere else. Resources, connections, and a sincere invitation to anyone who wants help with their next challenge. Also, check out the new documentary that features Leah and Jure, 40 Below, the toughest race in the world. Coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota, a conversation about the great and sometimes not so great outdoors. I'm your host, Jody Gruen, and we do this for fun. occasion it is that we're actually all sitting down and that that's a first for we do this for fun that it's like an all family podcast yeah. like four, four microphones four yep. microphones four family members all together talking about the feats of two of our family members absolutely mm-hmm. hey you all played a role too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Support a little less. It's a team sport. A little less. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Babysitting your dog. Mm-hmm. Um. Was definitely. We, yeah. yeah. Which we was huge. Own, honestly, we, like we, had we knew he moments. was in a good good spot with his buddy to play with. And well, and that's interesting too. Like, yeah, it takes like a whole. It does. The it whole does, idea takes of take a, take a village Absolutely. to do an ultra endurance sport and like take yes. off and go and do and like fulfill your dreams. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are here talking to Leah Gruen and Jure Moore, who are a married couple. And I think this is really interesting because I am guessing that there are very few couples that enjoy doing similar things and actually like take off and do these adventures together. I mean, there are people that do these adventures together, but like you hear about them like hiking or going traveling and you know, whatever. But Mm -hmm. let's talk about what both of you just did. (laughs) Do you want to start, Jure, or should I? Okay, (laughs) I will kind of give an overview. So uh, starting in late February, we drove down to the Twin Cities in Minnesota in a snowstorm. and uh, Andy and Jody got us to the airport, but then we flew to Alaska and we uh, basically got on, we flew up to Anchorage and then got on our bikes and uh, biked across Alaska. So we participated in a bike race. It's called the Iditarod Trail Invitational. And it is, um, sorry, it's either a, you can participate either on bike, foot, or skis. Um, and there's two different distances in the race and, um, 350 mile or a thousand mile. And I would say most of the people who entered do the 350 mile. Um, and, uh, so Dre and I rode together for the first 350 miles. Dre was in the 350 mile race and then we said goodbye. And then I continued on for the next 650 miles and, um, yeah, wrapped that up in late March. So now is this the same Iditarod as what? Probably most people understand exactly, it to be. Yes, okay. it's on the Iditarod Trail. Um, and um, the, I, the dog sled race has been going on for like 50 years. And the human-powered version has been going on for 20. 
So um, at some point after the dog sled race was going, the founder said, hey, let's bring in the human-powered version. And so then they started um, bike runner ski. So it's the same trail, um, and it starts exactly one week before the dog sled race. So um, what that means is that um, dogs uh, run faster than bikers even. And so at some point, the dog teams catch up to um, the people in the race. So the cool thing about doing the thousand is you see, you have like a front row seat in the Iditarod dog sled race. Like just amazing to like be out there and have like dog teams come by and talk to mushers and all that. So you're riding your bike and like you're seeing the, the sleds come by, oh, yeah. the dogs come by. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You hear are the that? dogs quiet or are they? No, you, you first, usually, typically, if you don't hear the musher yelling, because sometimes the musher will be saying things to the dogs, which probably mean like, keep going, don't worry about this person. It's hard to know exactly what they mean. But what I would hear is like the jangling, you know, jangling of metal, because you can hear mm. like the, um, like the, buckles attached to their collars and harnesses and stuff so i could hear kind of this like changling of you know this metal noise and so then i would just pull off on the trail turn around and and see them coming there was one time when i was listening to um ironically bob dylan i had that like blasting on my um headphones and then the um defending champ um Brent Sass, who's from Minnesota, came up behind me. So it's this very like Minnesota moment of like listening to Bob Dylan, and then like the guy from Minnesota comes up behind me, and I actually kind of didn't really hear him, and then pulled off on the side. But um, also at that time, right before that, the two the trail kind of split and it forked, and his lead dogs, like the one on the right, decided to go right, and the one on the left decided to go left, and so he had to <coughs> kind of tell him like, "Hey, you can't. You have to." kind of stick together each uh-huh. dogs. you can't like go on each side of this tree or else like there are going to be problems <laughs> apparently that's the thing that the the lead the two lead dogs will kind of take different route and they'll kind of fork and then that huh. is problematic cool. but, okay which bob dylan song were you listening to do you remember i don't remember okay i have okay. to think about it maybe desolation row or something okay. i right. don't know all right you looked like you had a question andy yeah like yeah yeah going. so one of the neat things um you, you ran into a Musher, who I don't think was racing, but who's been a family friend forever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was nuts. So I was about, um, let's say, 600 miles into the race, um, and we had just finished a section on the Yukon River. I was At that point, I was traveling with, um, I guess, four bikers in the race, and then three who were kind of also on the trail at that point. We were sleeping in the school gymnasium at the uh, public school in Caltech. Um, and it's the start of the Caltech Portage, which is the kind of the portage between the Yukon River and the coast. So kind of a historical, you know, place. Um, and uh, anyway, so I was like, you know, was, and we were sleeping on the on mattresses. They had like gym mats. So we were sleeping on those in the school gym. And so at the end of the night, I went to the um, girls' bathroom to go brush my teeth. And I walk by the entryway, and I see this guy standing there. And I, I, had taken a couple, I saw him. I took a couple steps. I was like, wait a minute. I think that could be Alex Buto. And so I took a couple steps back. I was like, wait, are you Alex? He said, yes, I am. And so it turns out this is um, Alex Buto, and our grandmothers were best friends. And so uh, my mom and his aunt were best friends, and they were made of each honors, made of honors in each other's weddings. And um, so he was up there as a trail sweep. So he and four other guys were on snowmobiles, um, sweeping the trail at the end, just to like you know look out for any um, you know things that were left on the trail and like um, 
yeah. So anyway, so it was just really a fun, like small world experience to run into him on that trail. And he had actually uh, mushed run, he run dog teams on the Iditarod uh, years ago. And then also the Yukon Quest prior to that. Mm. So it's my understanding, too, there were quite a few other small world opportunities or like that had occurred on that trail. Like you're how many miles are you from home and how many small world yeah, I mean, one other thing that happened was, um, so I live in Duluth, Minnesota. Andy and Jody are in the Twin Cities. And, you know, Lynn from this podcast and Ian, Ian is one of the twins. So one of Ian's uh, jobs is he uh, is a videographer with the Iditarod Insider. So he's following the lead mushers um, in the race. And so around mile, like, you know, 450 maybe, um, I'm messaging with him about where we are because I know he's getting close at that point. Um, and I had a, um, a Garmin inReach, so I was able to send messages out that he could get. So I told him, oh, yeah, we're heading into Tolstoy Cabin, and the, the weather was really bad. It was, like, snowing, and we kind of stopped early for the afternoon. So then um, so he was on snowmobile, and he came in and saw us. It was about a mile off the trail. So he and his guide, Sasha, came in to hang out at the um, shelter cabin with us for probably an hour or so to say hi and hang out. And I could hear what his experience was like in the first half of the race and um, what he had seen with the dog teams. And we were able to compare notes like, yeah, when I went through this, you know, the high pass, it was these conditions. And he was like, yeah, it was completely opposite when he went through. So it's just really fun to see him and compare notes about everything. And did he end up rolling a snow machine? He did, it turns out. Yeah, when he was out at Shagaluk, or no, Shaktulik, um, heading up to a cabin, he must have hit a pressure ridge or something. He didn't even know. He just told me this story earlier today. Um, he hit um, like a, something in the trail. It kind of turned sideways. And then when he kind of turned sideways, he hit his throttle like full on. Um, and really kind of like rubbed his machine and so it like spun around and stuff broke and um, it was a little bit of a yard sale with I think stuff landing on the ice and um, but apparently he he wasn't hurt and his snow machine was still good to keep going so this is Ian he's never gonna get hurt he is like bulletproof and um, he can fix anything it's my um Jure I have a question for you it is my understanding that this uh, race was actually never really part of your plan this year, or it maybe was like um, something in your head, but it wasn't really like a, a, a thing that you had planned necessarily to do this year. Right. So I, um, I was on the waiting list for the, to get into the race, and, but I was pretty far down on the waiting list. Like I had been emailing with the, the race organizers kind of asking like, basically how likely is it that I'm going to get in? And they, they would sort of blow me off. Like, well, maybe. Well, it's um, also like, maybe if you show up on the starting line, we can find right. a spot for you, which is kind so of a non-answer. I had kind of basically decided like, yeah, th- this isn't probably going to happen for me this year. And I was okay with that. Um, I was going to, but I was planning to fly up to Anchorage to help Leah get ready for the start and, and, you know, be there for the start. And then a week before the race, I get an email from the race organizers like, oh, you're in. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was Leah and I had a lot of discussions about whether we could make this work or yeah. not. But at that point, you know, we were 
our headspace was really like in this Iditarod Trail Invitational. So we were we were thinking about gear and food and all this. So it it kind of worked out well that we could just pack an extra set of right. gear and food and and I went up and and uh, we were able to do the first 350 miles of this this event together, which was really mm-hmm. a a neat experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't know any other couple that would be able to do that honestly like i mean leah's planning to do this you're waiting you know on the wait list Mm -hmm. and clearly you know like what i have to though is like you weren't training for this but you yeah i mean i so i was um i was not super disciplined with my training like i i mean i had done the arrowhead 135 so i felt like i had and somewhat just, of a, and that's a, a solid base similar but. type of event that you can ski bike or run it so Dre's in the bike so that's a bike race or we can call it a bike race uh, that's an event that Dre biked which is 135 miles from International Falls to Tower in northern Minnesota at the coldest time of the year and so Dre just done that on bike right so you felt ready well I wouldn't say that <laughs> I um yeah I was definitely questioning like am I am I physically ready for this but I also thought you know this it's it's a cool opportunity i'll i'll try it and just see how i do and it turned out i was i i did fine and it was it was good but although you've been skiing a lot yeah i've been doing a lot of skiing i was i was training for the uh the berkey ski race um which i had to i had to skip because we had to fly out for, to alaska so i was i had to skip the berkey unfortunately but so i you know i had I had some fitness, but not really specific to this event. So I I just kind of went into it without a lot of expectations, which actually served me well. Like I I just sort of enjoyed, enjoyed the time and didn't try to push too hard or race it really. I just, Mm -hmm. I just had, had fun and enjoyed the, the company of the other racers and of course riding with Leah and just like the amazing landscape that you're passing through. Like it was just, such a mm-hmm. such a neat experience but from the time that he got the email from the race director i think it was like probably a tuesday no i don't know what night it was he got an email from the race director saying like let me know if you want to do it he responded the next morning and said yep i'll do it so he like signed up then and then that night we had to pack his food so we had already packed eighty-eight thousand calories for me for like the nine um drop boxes that i had and i'd already mailed most of that up um, to Alaska. So then like that night, like the same day that you signed up, we had to pack, I forget if it was 20,000 or 30,000 calories for you. Right. So that you could but mail are, your drops up the next we day. We already had the stockpile of food. So, so they, it was just. So they could get there in time. Because they had to be. Adding more Ziploc bags. Pretty much. Because right. yep. yep. they had to be there on a certain day and we had to pack it that night so it could be overnighted. Yeah. The I had to day. send it FedEx overnight to get it to Anchorage wow. so that they could load it on a plane and fly it into these checkpoints. Mm-hmm. So I have many questions about that, but one of them is like, what does, <coughs> you know, what does like 20,000 calories look like? And then multiplying that by four, Leah, right? Mm-hmm. Like what, what do you, what does that look like to the average person? 20 I mean, <laughs> containers of peanut butter. Right. Or, yeah. <laughs> in, okay. So in general, a lot of candy, like, candy. chips, so, crackers, so the strategy is to get food that has like high caloric density. 
Um, so the opposite, kind of the opposite of what you would strive for in like everyday life, um, in terms of like, you know, normally you'd strive for like low caloric density foods in general, like, you know, fruits and vegetables and, and that fresh. kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you want things with high caloric density so that, cause you don't want to carry any extra weight than you have to. Um, so you want to be like efficient with the food that you have and you want foods with relatively like a low amount of um, water or moisture in them mm-hmm. because like who would want to eat like, you know, a frozen bell pepper, um, or yeah. like, you know, any sort of vegetables, even a peanut butter and jelly sandwich frozen, like out, if you were to take that out of your freezer, like that would be disgusting. And like, normally I think a PB and J would be a great food to eat like on a summer bike ride, but, uh, but in the winter it's just not. So what, um, so what we do is like, sometimes when we buy food that we think like, oh, maybe this would be good for riding in the winter. We'll put it in the freezer like overnight or until we remember that it's there. And then we'll pull it out and like eat it and think like, okay, would this be good to eat? Or is this like really weird and disgusting? So you eat it when it's cold, yeah. like straight out of straight the freezer. Because yeah. that's Just what to, like, the reality that's is. The, okay. That's what it's going to be like when you pull it out of your feed bag or out of your frame bag. Yeah. It's going to be like frozen solid and, you know, could be below zero. You had a bunch of soups and ramens. Did any of that work out? Hang on. Let me finish. All right, all right, okay. So, so the food, I'll, I'll come around to that. So the foods that are good are things that are that you would eat out of the freezer. So that's like candy, um, cookies and crackers and that sort of thing. Um, then, thank you, Andy. Like another type of food that's good is soups, which are like just add water. So that's the thing that a lot of people will eat. Um, particularly in the thousand mile, but even in the 350 miles. Yeah, so particularly like, on a longer race where you're going to, you're going to stop and take the time to heat up water and, melt snow. and have sort of a, a meal. I mean, so more so than you like would on a shorter race thing. That's like the biggest brand, but there are a lot of other brands and we actually made a lot of our own things out of like soup and ramen and that kind of stuff. And then also mm-hmm. oatmeal for breakfast is a good, like that was one of my favorite breakfast was oatmeal with creamer in it mm. and coffee with, creamer of all the food that you have what was your favorite like what was the meal that you were like this is the rice and raisins of this trip i tried making rice and raisins out of instant rice and it 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 wasn't it didn't hydrate fast enough for me it was instant brown rice maybe it would have been better with instant white rice um i think my favorite thing was uh momofuku which is a restaurant in new york city fancy they make ramen which you can buy at target and so I would eat the really um, momofuku ramen, and then I would put in like some um, protein, some like soy curls, mm. just so I could have a little bit of protein in there too. So mm. that was really good. Um, also, like coffee. Okay, so that's one. I, sorry, this is a, I can't just pick one. The other thing that was so good is I had I had packed so much coffee with like just that like creamette creamer that my mm-hmm. grandparents used to use like the powdered creamer <laughs> yeah which normally in my life i would like totally turn my nose up at but uh, but i just packed a ton of coffee with creamer in it and it was so good <laughs> to be able to have in the mornings and then along the trail when we would stop at like a shelter cabin and like pour in some boiling water and just make coffee the best part was at some point, Tiziano had picked up a package of like duplex cookies or kind of like Oreos or like the vanilla style uh-huh. of cookies, just kind of the like El Cheapo cookies. And um, I had asked the Italians, I said, what's the Italian word for cookie? What would you call this? And they said biscotti, mm. like biscotti. They, they don't have a different word for cookie other than like biscuit, which is biscotti and mm-hmm. biscuit. So anyway, so they, you know, they called the cookies <laughs> biscotti. And then 
a day or two later, when we stopped for a coffee break, I saw one of the Italians taking one of these duplex cookies and dipping it in his coffee and then eating it. And then I did that. And then like, that was the best ever. And so then like, even now I'm like, oh, that's so good to just dip like cheap cookies and coffee and eat it. Like, that's amazing. Um, okay. I just want to know though, too, what it's like as a couple doing these things together. Like, um, you know, do you get frustrated with each other on the trail? Do you, are is it just like supportive cheerleading? Like, what is it like um, when you're with the person that is your person and you're doing these things? I mean, you live day in and day out together. Mm-hmm. Right. What's it like do when you do the something question, like should that? I start and then you add on? Oh, there's, you there's smiling. There's smiling. <laughs> and it was like, first it was like, kind of a, um, the, the smile, it took a little while. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, it's, it, it's definitely an interesting mm-hmm. dynamic. Um, so I, we, I feel like we're we're really supportive of each other out there, but we kind of um, we've we've figured out over the years of doing these types of events, like we we kind of go at our own pace and um, we try to support each other as much as we can, but we're not necessarily feeling like we have to be within sight of each other all the time. Like, you know, some days one of us might f- be feeling better than the other one. Um, so we we kind of, we check in on each other, I guess, but we're not like with each other 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's important in these types of events, like you're, you're kind of in your own headspace. Mm-hmm. And so you want to um, support each other where you can, but but also give each other the space to kind of go at your own pace and and do what you need to do to what feels right in that moment. I don't know. What would, what would you add? I would just add that like, so we've been married for 20 years now, like going on canoe trips and doing all kinds of things for probably 27 years. Um, and so like, I well, think we have a good sense for how the other person is feeling. And I mean, I think we can, we can read each other pretty well. Yeah. A lot of, and I know like a lot of couples will, you know, call like you know a tandem kayak like a divorce you know like kind of the key to like a divorce but like we've paddled you know been in the same canoe so many times for like weeks at a time and so we're really kind of in tune with each other and i think you know in some ways kind of i don't forgiving enough of each other that it works and we have a system that works so when we ride together you know i think that jure is more helpful than not like you know there are times when he was behind me and he would say like oh your rear tire looks like it's flat you should stop and put some air in whereas if i were by myself i might not know that i might just Mm -hmm. think like why is this feel so hard um so i think that he is you know definitely helpful and supportive in that way um and i think that in the 350 when we were there, like in the second half every day, like midday, you're like, hey, I'm just going to keep going. Uh, I'm going to stop here tonight. Uh, see you when you get there. Um, so like we only would ride on those last few days. We only rode together half the day, which was fine. So, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's nice to have them around. Um I wouldn't say that it necessarily, I mean, in some regards, maybe it speeds me up to have them there. Um, it's always nice to have company. Um, whether that's him or other people on the trail, just to like keep my brain kind of functioning at a higher level than it might be if I were just uh, out there by myself. But um, yeah. For the ITI or the Arrowhead or any of the other big races, are there other like couples that 
are there doing the same race at the same time in a similar way to the two of you doing it? I mean, not together because it's like an individual race, but right. are there other couples that, that attend those races? Or I know of one in the ITI this year. And in the past, in the Arrowhead, I can think of, you know, at least one each year. Right. Another couple. So yeah. it's not the norm, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely not common. Yeah. But it def- like, what is an average day like? Yeah. So the, um, the Iditarod Trail Invitational is a little bit different than some other endurance events where, like the Arrowhead 135, um, if you bike it, a lot of people try to do the whole race in one push without sleeping or maybe just taking a short nap or something. Whereas the Iditarod Trail Invitational, it's long enough that for most people, you know, they expect it's going to take four or five, six days at least to do the 350 mile. And so it's a little bit more, um, think of it more of like a, a bike tour a little bit where, um, you know, you're expecting to stop and sleep each night. Um, so a, a typical day is you get up, you set your alarm for probably 5 a.m., 6 a.m., some early time. Um, and keep in mind, you know, it's it's still dark out at that time of morning in Alaska in, in March. So you, you get up and um, have a little bit of food, uh, load up your bike and hit the trail. And if you're lucky, you're out there to see the sunrise, which is always like amazing and, and beautiful out mm-hmm. on the trail. And then um, you just keep pedaling slow and steady <laughs> and... Um, you know, we would take breaks every so often to get food um, or stop and eat food, um, have a drink of water, um, and but you just keep keep going. And the the trail is um, there. There tend to be checkpoints about every forty to fifty miles, and so at the beginning of each day, you typically have a have a target of, you know, I'm going to make it to the next checkpoint, which is often maybe 40, 50 miles. And so you just keep pedaling until you, until you get there. And it's, it's awesome to get to these checkpoints. They're, um, typically lodges or community centers or, or schools. Um, it's a nice warm place where you can, you can hang out, dry out your clothing um, the race volunteers prepare food for you. So like there was one checkpoint where we got there and, um, you know, they've got a warm, they've got warm soup waiting and they make you a burger or an impossible burger. If you're, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was especially great. I got there inclined. they're like, Oh, you're vegetarian. Here's an impossible burger and here's mm-hmm. avocado. So they like took a whole oh, avocado yeah. and sliced it up. <gasps> and then for breakfast was the same, like, Oh, here's like, you know, I forget what it was. Was it like a big omelet or something? Or what was it? And like another like full avocado, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Yeah. Or like I got like, um, veggie brats at the other checkpoint where most races will typically get normal meat brats. So they will accommodate people with. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. I appreciate. Cool. Yeah. Even going into it, I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah. Like for the place with like that always gives brats. It's like legendary for years. It's been brats. And when I was there seven years ago, I was like, can I just have like a bun and ketchup just because it's better than nothing. It kind of like <laughs> yeah, provides the salt. I feel like I'm part of this. Yeah. So I'm, so for listeners, I'm vegetarian. Um, <laughs> So, um, but this year they had brats, which was, and they have, I guess, for the past couple of years, which is really nice. I felt like they were really accommodating. Yeah. It was awesome. Yep, definitely. 
Mm-hmm. I have a question. You were mentioning like how you're, you know, you're kind of plodding along. Mm-hmm. Um, how fast are you going on these trails? Like, I think a lot of us think of cycling and we think about us, mm. you know, going down our streets or like, right. you know, and going down hills and that it must be pretty fast. Funny. It, it's completely different. Yeah. Oh, really? It, Much slower right. pace. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I would say the, the one constant is that it's really variable. Like mm-hmm. it, the trail conditions change constantly. Um, and especially this year we had, um, we had pretty cold weather and there was a snowstorm that came through. And so there was some fresh snow on the trail and then it got windy. So that snow blew around. And, um, so it, it made for trail conditions that just changed a lot in a, um, you know, you'll, you'll find some good trail and you'll be riding at maybe eight miles an hour, but then you'll hit a section of trail that's windblown and you, basically can't ride and you'll mm-hmm. you'll be off your bike walking or maybe riding short short sections but like two miles an hour really doing walking. a lot of walking mm-hmm. and so um you definitely have to go into this with the with a flexible mindset of like you, you know you can't expect okay this next checkpoint is 40 miles away i can go eight miles an hour it's going to take me five hours like that that is the Doesn't recipe work. for disaster you need to just really take it as it comes and if the trail's slow you're going to get off and walk and you just Mm -hmm. need to be okay with that Mm -hmm. um which can be i mean it can definitely be mentally challenging to you know because you you feel like gosh i should be able to move move a lot faster but sometimes you, you just can't and you have to you have to do what the trail will allow you to do and and part of it is just like conserving energy right because it's like you need to be able to go out there the next day and ride again so you don't want to burn all your energy trying Mm -hmm. to ride through these really slow trail conditions so the other calculus that i'll do like when i'm getting closer to a town and like starting to think about like okay what time am i going to get to the town and what's going to be you know who's going to be there and what's going to be open and kind of what is my like am i going to eat a meal or you know like you kind of anticipate all of these things one of the things that I think about is like, okay, worst case scenario, if something happens to my bike right now and I'm walking from here to the checkpoint, that's let's just assume like two miles an hour. So then like, what does that mean in terms of time? Because you can know like best case scenario is like the speed I'm going now. Worst case scenario is two miles an hour walking hmm. until I get there. Hmm. So, cause that thought is always in the back of your mind. Like what if something happens right. that I'm not able to fix on the trail? Like what if I get, you know, some big mechanical problem that I can't fix. I got to get to the next town before I can fix it or get a part flown in or, you know, whatever. It so the be. other thing about the trail is that, I mean, it, it, it is a, it's obviously a, an established trail corridor, but it, it isn't like the trails that a lot of folks are probably accustomed to in the uh, lower 48 where, you know, you get like a snowmobile trail. I mean, there's a big grooming machine that'll come through and, and pack the trail that doesn't happen on the Iditarod Trail. Like there's a, um, they send a fleet of snowmobiles through the trail to pack it down for the dog sled race. And there's also a, a snowmobile race that occurs on the on the trail about a week before this event. So there's some traffic that passes through, but you're much more at the whims of kind of whether a snowmobile has passed through and packed the trail. It isn't, mm-hmm. there isn't like really 
grooming to the same extent that there is um, on a lot of trails that people might be more familiar with. And also one thing the about the, the checkpoints or the towns that you're crossing through, like from like 10 miles in, there are no roads. Um, there are no road crossings. Nothing is accessible by cars. You know, lots of these, um, if you go to like a village, there's an airport. And at some of the lodges, you know, they have a place where like a plane on skis could land. But there's no like road access. Mm. So if you were going to like... Let's say you had to drop out of the race or you had a mechanical problem. You're either flying out or getting a part flown into you. But there's no, like, driving. Huh. One of the things that I really love to do, and and for listeners, um, there's not a lot of ways remotely to interact or to watch, to spectate a race like this. But there's a a great website called... um, Trackleaders.com. Trackleaders.com. Yeah. And where, where I would go to watch and say, like, oh, where's Leah? Where's Dre? Those kinds of things. And there's this replay function where you can hit play, like you can back it up and be like, I want to see everything for the last 24 hours. And it would it would speed up the speed of which people are moving, but you could see like, oh, like at this point in the morning, everybody's together. And then at this point, Dre goes ahead and Leah's behind and Trey's moving and Leah's walking and, you know, like to be able to follow along. And one of the really interesting things um, that I that I didn't understand watching it, but was it seemed like like after Dre left when you were on the back 600 back 650 uh <laughs> just wrapping nine. it up <laughs> you yeah. and the, the golf in the back the, nine the crew that you were riding with would sleep overnight wake up in the morning and bike during daylight hours uh-huh. and then get to the next spot but the runners the people on foot would sleep until midnight and then wake up and by one in the morning they'd be walking overnight to try and get in by nine or 10 in the morning there. And I, it seems like the winter time, the night time during the winter time would be the most dangerous to be out and to be exposed and to be outside. And I, I didn't understand kind of the thought behind that. So like, so not being them, I can do my best to answer the question as to how (coughs) they decided when they moved and when they didn't. But, um, but I was with the three people on foot in a thousand for a couple days. What I think they were doing is walking at a good rate of speed. So like three miles an hour, like 20 minute Mm -hmm. miles. So that's like a power walk, uh, pulling a sled. They would power walk to the next, either like cabin checkpoint, whatever it was. Um, and these were spaced, um, on average, I don't know, let's say 20, 20 to 30 miles apart, maybe only 15 at some points. Let's just say 20 to 40 miles apart. So they would like, you know, power walk and then they would get somewhere and sleep for about three hours and then get up, pack up their stuff and then power walk to the next place. And so (coughs) like... They would sleep kind of whenever they got to the place and had the opportunity to sleep. And so their sleep schedules were like, you know, sometimes at night, sometimes in the middle of the day, you know, kind of like whenever they were Uh. at the place. So, you know, when people say like, oh, that's great that you, you know, bike this thing, it must have been so tough. The reality is in the last like half, in the second half, um, we were sleeping at least eight hours a night at night, not out in the coldest part of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, we would like not really start riding until nine. Cause that was like right before sunrise. And then once the sun came up, everything was warm and great. Like we, it was like a completely civilized schedule. 
And I have so much respect for the people on foot who are like motoring all the time at a fast rate of speed and then just sleeping for a few hours before they keep going. So this year um, there were 10 who finished on bike and then three on foot who were after all the, mm-hmm. the bikers. So yeah, so they're, they're the hardcore ones in yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, it just seemed pretty rough. Yeah, they're great. Mm-hmm. And it, was, yeah. it was fun to be able to be with them and see them and see that schedule because normally in like, you know, when I did the, I did our invitational, like, you know, in 2016, I was always ahead of the people on foot. And so I never really got to like interact with them and get to know them and kind of see their schedules. Um, whereas this year we saw them for a couple days after, you know, a couple days in the middle of the race before we were able to, to get ahead of them. So it was mm. a cool experience. I do remember when I was at McGrath, so at mile 350, I was talking to, uh, Bayot and um, he went on to be one of like the two first you know two winners of the foot race and he said like oh once you get to the coast you're gonna be blown away and he's like not just because it's windy because it's beautiful <laughs> and I thought about that the whole like you know the whole part I was on the coast that like yeah. get blown away maybe partially because yeah, it's windy. not because it's beautiful it's just really windy <laughs> yeah. you're gonna get literally <laughs> blown really away both. Yeah. that was like yeah. the perfect statement to uh, make that was really cool that was one of the questions I had though was like one of those moments you know, like of pure beauty. Mm-hmm. Do you each have one of those? I would say for me, I'll let Dre answer after I answer my question. Um, there was a point we were on the coast. We were about a day and a half before finishing. So it was me and the three Italians and the um, the Kiwi from New Zealand. And there's this, um, it's like the last climb that you go over. They call it Little McKinley because it's... Um, a sizable climb and then from there you descend down to lake level and you're or sorry ocean sorry, i live in duluth so i call it <laughs> lake level um you descend down to the ocean then you're basically along the ocean the whole rest of the time to the finish so uh so we were at the top of little mckinley and tiziano said normally he would speak in italian but he said let's go in <laughs> english and um so he went first i went behind him and it was just like standing up like like standing up on our bikes so like pedaling as fast as we could in our top gear just just like on this huge long descent Mm. down to the ocean and it was just so fun to just like go as fast as we could the trail was firm and it was just like i just felt like so like carefree and just like it was just so fun to just like bomb down to um to the ocean and then after that point we were on riding on sea ice and a few weeks prior to that point there had been like waves and a storm or whatever so it had kind of broken up the sea ice and then it reformed and so the ice it was just like glare ice with these like kind of jumbles of ice kind of intermixed but the way the trail was set we were able to ride on smooth ice the whole time so to me like the jumbled up ice was kind of like uh symbolic of like waves and like Mm. motion that you normally see on the ocean Um, but we were just on like the solid ice, just like cruising towards, you know, the next town and checkpoint. And then when we roll up to the school, the people were anticipating us and they were like, Hey, you know, are you hungry? Like we have a hot lunch ready for you. And the school said made us lunch with these greens and they knew I was vegetarian. They had like done all this like legwork to find that out. And it was just so nice to have like spaghetti and sauce and green. And it was just like that whole like day was just awesome. The day that you cut across that, that open ice. Um, that was another spectator moment for me. I was watching and, and I was talking to mom and uh, and <coughs> you guys are like, I don't know, probably 15 miles out onto the ice 
and you were probably two or three miles, maybe three miles from shore, four Uh miles from shore. And there was a spot where the way that the trail was marked, you were supposed to kind of like take a left and keep going out on the ice. But instead of taking a left, you guys are like beelining for the shore. So that was a, a thing where we were, we were talking and we were comparing notes, watching you online. And we were like, ah, why is Leah not taking a left? Why is she not anywhere near the trail? Like, why are they all, this whole crew, beelining for the shore? So there was like a lot mm-hmm. of speculation, not having any idea what mm-hmm. was actually happening, but just being able to follow along with the blip on a satellite to mm-hmm. say, huh, major deviation from the standard trail right here. Right. So the track on track leaders is based on what the course was, you know, what it was in some point in the past. Um, And so what we were following when we were out there is the stakes that were placed by the trail crews Mm -hmm. from the Iditarod. And so we knew as long as we kept following the stakes, we would get to the next town of Koyuk. Um, so that's what we were following. And I had no idea that actually it deviated from the red line on track leaders. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it was all good. We were just following the stakes and, right. and no, no concerns. Do you have Joy, a favorite part? Moment. Joy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's at least a couple I can think of. Uh, the, the first was, um, the first night we were out on the trail. So the, it's, it's interesting. The race, uh, starts at two o'clock in the afternoon, which is also the time that the Iditarod dog sled race starts. So that's why they, they start this later. race mm-hmm. at that time. But it's a little bit challenging because you're, you know, you you start this race in the afternoon and you've only been going a few hours and it starts to get dark. And, you know, you want to get on this schedule of sort of sleeping at night and riding during the day, but you've got this adrenaline and you're excited to, to race. You've just started this race. Anyway, this this first night, um, it was really cold. It was probably about thirty below zero, and but we had the most amazing display of northern lights, mm. like just absolutely indescribable. Really, at the beginning, we were riding with a woman who's a pilot for Alaska Air. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was on bike and like she lives in Alaska. She flies year round for Alaska air. So she sees a lot of Northern lights. And at the beginning she was kind of like, oh, you tourists, like I'm not going to take mm. a picture. Of course you're excited about the Northern lights. I'm not going to take a picture. But then later in the evening, she's like, oh no, this is really cool. This is a great Northern lights. So I'm going to like stop. And yeah. Take so what it does just that look kept like? getting better and better. What, what, do, what, do, what do the Northern lights look like? I mean, in Alaska, it's, it's hard to describe. Like, um, there were just these waves and curtains of like green and pink and purple. And, and it was like, I mean, if, if you've seen the Northern lights in the lower 48, um, they kind of seem like they're far away. I mean, you can see them, but this was like, they were just right there. I mean, Mm -hmm. you almost felt like you could reach out and, and, touch hmm. and the other it was, difference it is was like, just when i've so seen amazing. them before they've been out for like an hour or something like kind of a short duration but like we happened to be on the river until like two or three in the morning like i don't know we were right. out there like really so, really late and they just were doing this all night all night uh-huh. so when you'd be like oh i'm cold i'm maybe a little tired and maybe a little bit miserable you just like look up the lines like whoa they're still there <laughs> they're still doing their thing yeah, I felt so like they were cool. kind of keeping us company that first yeah. night. It was neat. And that night was a tough night for a lot of racers. So this year's Iditarod had Iditarod Trail Invitational had only a 52% finisher rate, which I'd be curious to look at the numbers. Could have been an all-time low. 
because typically the finisher rate is much higher. A lot of it is because it's so hard to fly out from, you know, hard, hard to get out of the race once you start because you have to like get a flight and that's logistically really complicated. Uh, but in any case, so the first night with it being 30 below, a lot of racers felt like, okay, I want to get to that um, roadhouse at Yentna. So they're kind of pushing to get there and kind of like ignoring things that they should have been. There was a lot of frostbite mm-hmm. um, and other issues in order to get there. Um, so that was tough for a lot of people. There was someone who uh, was picked up in a helicopter with mm. um, hypothermia and frostbite and, and other friends of ours who got frostbite. So... Um, so that was tough. It was almost like uh, when you're in college, like engineering classes and like the first year of physics is like super hard and they make it super hard to like weed out everyone. That's what it was like. It was like the weed out night of the ITI. So anyone who might get frostbite would have gotten it that first night. <laughs> everyone who had kind of like passed the test and kept going could. Yeah. So um, I was never in physics class, so nobody <laughs> weeded me out. I mean, I know all of you were. You didn't. But, mi- you didn't yeah, miss but out. I understand what you're saying here. Yeah. Yes. And then the other, I I'd say the other like moment of beauty that comes to mind for me is um, there's a a checkpoint at it's called Roan. so it's you've crossed over the Alaska Range and you're kind of coming down the the north slope of the mountains. And we got in there late at night, um, and it was a it was a really windy um, night. There was a lot of snow blowing around. It was it was kind of intense conditions getting in there. It was nuts. Um, <laughs> it just felt like a really big accomplishment to get there. And then the next morning, we we um, we woke up. So there's a the the tent or the race has a like a canvas tent you can sleep in with a wood stove. So it's it's kind of warm and they have food for you and it's, it's, it's a good place to hang out. And, um, we woke up in the morning and you know, the winds had calmed down and you step out of this tent and you're just like surrounded by these beautiful mountains. And, um, it's just, it's a really striking mm-hmm. landscape and, um, it's a gorgeous checkpoint. Like mm-hmm. you just feel this as a real feeling of accomplishment mm-hmm. to like, Hey, I, I, on, under my own power, mm-hmm. got myself here on a bike. I crossed the Alaska Ridge yeah, in the winter. I mean, it, it was an, it was a From, neat. I started experience. the coast near Anchorage, and I came up and over a mountain yeah. range in Alaska, and then now I'm here, kind yeah. of on the on the far on the far side of like the high point. Right, but I'm still kind of in the beauty of it. Yeah, it's really a beautiful place. So what you're doing is so difficult, but it sounds also like it's. It's not simple, like it's not a simple thing to do, but it's like a simple idea of a way to move yourself somewhere and actually like experience a landscape and a culture and that kind of thing. Like what drives you to do that? Well, so I was going to say like that you just hit on like exactly what draws me to these events is like think your life is reduced to like simple things like you're just worried about putting calories in staying hydrated and moving forward you don't really have to worry about a whole lot else you know there there aren't emails to respond to or phone calls (laughs) to answer or text messages it's just like everything is really simple and um and you've got the camaraderie of other participants in in the event i mean you know at the end of each day you're 
typically stopping to sleep for the night somewhere and there'll be other racers there and you'll all be kind of talking about your experiences that day. And so it, there's really a kind of a community that, that develops, which is, which is neat. So, um, yeah, I think like the, just the, the simplicity of it and the, the fact that you can, you just need to focus on what you need to do to keep moving forward. Like I, I really enjoy that that simplicity and and just the the um the lack of distraction or anything else you just you just worry about what you need to do to take care of yourself and the the people around you Mm -hmm. and i think what i was initially drawn to with this event back you know the first time we went up there in 2016 is that the I Did Our Trail Invitational is the event that's been going on for 20 years that inspired the Arrowhead 135 in Minnesota. So it's kind of like the longer running, you know, even more prestigious race. And so I wanted to go up and see that because it's more remote and you cross a mountain range um, and just the beauty of being in the Alaska mountains in the winter in areas like, you know, like the question has come up from my brother most recently, could you go and do it in the summer? The answer is like, no way could you do it in the summer. There's wetlands and there's <laughs> bugs. And like, if you've ever gone through like muskeg in the summer and dealt with bugs, like, and lakes, I mean, you would, it'd be a pack ride. The winter's way better. <laughs> the winter's awesome. The winter is the time. Which no one would ever, th- I mean, I should say right. no one. People who are inexperienced it's like myself, counterintuitive. we would never think that. We'd be like, I would much rather try yeah. in the no, summertime. No, you and would the not thing, want to be there the in the summer. The thing that's amazing yeah. is like, so there was a um, a film made um, a long time ago. R.J. Sauer made it, A Thin White Line. And he t- the thin white line is like the term that he used to describe like the Iditarod Trail. And like, it's not only a thin white line, sometimes literally only four inches thin as like what's a rideable surface up there on the Iditarod Trail. Like you step a foot over and you're like up to your thigh Mm. in like the softest snow um, where you're like, you know, kind of swimming in it like a kid in like a bin of like balls, you know. Um, So it's a thin white line, but it's also like, just as like in not only in space but also in time like because you're there right at this unique period of time the iron dog uh snowmobile race has gone through and then we're there and then later on the dog sled race goes through and then they you know having the dog teams out there and all the snowmobiles associated with it like helps kind of make that trail rideable um and so it's really only rideable at this small location like this really thin line for a really short duration in time Mm -hmm. so the thought of like oh wouldn't it be fun to get to the finish and then bike back to the start like uh maybe but probably not because there probably would have been a (laughs) snowstorm at some point to deliver you know feet of powder and it wouldn't be rideable and because you don't have that same traffic that you have at this exact window that we go when you were out there for the boys to bring them along we watched um charlie chaplin's the gold rush which, you know, is it's funny comedy and like whatever, Charlie Chaplin humor. But like the one thing that they don't pull any punches on is just how brutal the the that part of Alaska is in the winter, right? Like mm. eating the sole of a shoe or like the <laughs> the really funny scene in the cabin where they open the door and the winter is blasting in so hard it like blasts the guy out the other door. Like, you know, just just that kind of that kind of vibe to it. So that was our 
That's funny. It's been a long time since I watched that movie. <clears throat> it's a good but movie. I saw it it's at a good some movie. point. Yeah. It was especially fun when I was in the Caltech school. So this is like the town that I got to after the sea ice crossing. We were um, at the school. We arrived. They put us up in the library. And, you know, the five of us kind of like staked out our own little spots within the school library. And the place that I was, I had my bike. I kind of like looked at the books next to me and I was in the Alaska nonfiction section. Mm. And so I started just like scanning the titles on the books on the bookshelf. And one of them was Robert Service uh, poems. And so I pulled that book off the shelf and I saw, um, help me out, Andy, uh, The Cremation of Sam McGee, mm-hmm. which was, so Robert Service was, a, um, I guess, poet, author, um, who was in the Yukon Territory on the Yukon River during the gold rush. So like you know, a hundred years ago or more. So it was fun to read his poetry about being up in the Yukon on the Yukon river, um, in the winters. So yeah. that's kind of cool. That was a very Gruen moment. <laughs> <laughs> in a, in a world where you can, you can experience so many things like virtually, you know, I mean, you can, lots of the the iconic places in the world like you can just watch some video and see what it looks like i'm sure you could probably but do the iditarod trail by your you, vr headset you right? could maybe probably. but like yeah. i just um i guess i feel a lot of gratitude that like i have the the physical ability mm. to be able to not just watch a video but like be there do it and do it yeah. and that really you know, I want to, I don't take that for granted by any means. So like, I want to, um, because I have that, the, the fortunate circumstances that I'm able to experience these things. Like I, I want to be out there. I want to feel the cold, um, feel like the struggle in some ways makes it feel worthwhile in that it's like, okay, I, I did the work to, to experience this. So I, I don't know. That's kind of what drives me is like, I'm, I'm able to do these things. And so I feel like I, I should, and, and hopefully, you know, I can inspire some other people to, to do things that, and it doesn't have to be this, right. I mean, it could be whatever, um, goal they might have like i hope i can inspire other people to to chase their their dreams and their goals Mm -hmm. and for myself so like i went to uh ymca camp wigiwagon in ely minnesota from the time that i was 11 years old and so there at wigi like you start out with like a you know typically like a six or seven day canoe trip in northern minnesota and then the next year you come back for a 10 day canoe trip and the next day it's like maybe 15 days and in a more remote area that's more challenging. So each year you're kind of like upping the challenge of it. And so like in a way, in unintentionally, that's kind of been a model for me to kind of throughout my life, kind of like, oh, cool, I did that. Let's see like what else, you know, let's, let's increase the level of challenge a little bit or the remoteness or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so for me, it was like starting, um, well, I guess in my like so-called adult life, um, when I was in my twenties, I did a gravel bike race that I didn't think I'd be able to do. And so I spent like a lot of the first half being like, okay, I'm, I'm in so far over my head. I'm not going to be able to finish. Like, how am I going to quit when I quit? Like it was a given to me that I was going to quit. I was like, am I going to call my, 
am I going to call Jeray and ask her ride out? Am I going to ride back to my house just on the roads? Because it was up in Duluth where I live. I was like, how am I, how am I going to quit? And so I was just like pondering this for probably 30 miles of riding. How am I going to quit? How am I going to quit? How am I going to quit? But I just kind of kept riding as I was thinking about this, just being, a, you know, indecisive about how I was going to quit. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up at the midpoint of the race, which was the furthest point away from the start and finish and the furthest point away from Duluth. And so I was like, well, shoot, okay, I made it to the midpoint. Maybe if I just stick with it, like at this point, it's as far to just finish the race as it is to like ride back on like the paved roads to get back to my house. Like, I guess I'll just keep going on the course and finish the thing. So I did that. And then when I finished that, I was just kind of amazed that I had finished it because I didn't think that I would have been capable of finishing it because it was way more biking than I'd ever done. I'd never done a bike race, anything like that, like more than 20 miles in a triathlon. So at that point I was like, whoa, that's so cool that I like was able to like do more than I thought I could um, and kind of exceeded my expectations of myself that then after that I was like, okay, maybe I'll sign up for the Tuscobia 80 on skis and see if I can do that. And I skied with my friend and we finished it and we're like, that's great. Now let's go to the Arrowhead 135 and do that on skis. Um, I guess I did that on skis and made it halfway and then (laughs) bought a fat bike and then finished it on bike. So like, it's kind of this, like, it's been this kind of procession of like, whoa, I did that. And you know, going into it, I didn't think that was possible, but through hard work and luck, I was able to accomplish that. So like what else is out there that, um, might seem, um, like a, just kind of a far-fetched dream that like, maybe I could actually work towards. Um, and so I did our trail invitational 350 was definitely that, like it had been on my, like I'd been aware of it for years. And so I finally, you know, after finishing the Airhead 135 for a couple times, I was like, yeah, like I'm going to sign up for that. And and hopefully I can finish it. And I did. And so then a couple of years had passed and I was like, yeah, I want to do the thousand. Like maybe I could finish that too. Um, so I did it and I did. So it was just kind of this like kind of progression of kind of accomplishing things and then being like, you know, why would I, why would I impose limits on myself before I really like explore them and see what those limits are? So, so having just done a thousand mile bike trip, Having also done things like the Great Divide, what else is left on the list of things and ways that you could challenge yourself? Like, well, there's a lot of things, and the the challenge is like fitting it in with work and like, lifestyle. Oh yeah, I think we haven't talked about that. Yeah. That you both like work full time. You yeah. have severely yeah. legit jobs that require <laughs> a lot out of you, a home to continue to manage, you know, yeah, like something. you're not, yeah, you're not being sponsored by right some product that is allowing you to do this. Right. And I think that's important for people pocket. to know, like, yeah. that, like, that this is doable with like a nine to five Monday to Friday job. And like back when I was in my twenties, I wanted to go canoeing for three months every summer. And then I got the job that I have and that's the busy time of the year. So I can't just be like, peace out, like we'll see you in September. So I need to find a hobby and a way to fill, you know, scratch that itch where I can still keep my day job. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And like, that's one thing that's really cool about doing the, uh, the I did our show invitation is you meet so many people with different like approaches in their lifestyle in order to achieve that or in order to, you know, make this doable for them. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of stuff I would love to do with unlimited 
time and money. Um, but uh, so for next year, so Dre and I are going back to the ITI and um, I do invitational and we're, we're both going to do the thousand next year. Mm-hmm. So, so what, sp- what? wait, both of you are doing the thousand yeah. next year. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Both. Yeah. All right. That's the plan. We're yeah. not, we're not officially in. We have. That's uh, thank you. Yeah, we signed up. We have signed okay. up, and assuming we get accepted, we so will do it. So the sign up process is you fill out some kind of application, yep. and then they decide whether or not they accept you. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So we should find out in the next month or two if we were accepted. If we we, we expect to get in, but we can't know for can't sure. Can't take it for granted. Right. Okay. Yep. So so just circling back a little bit on on something you said a second ago, um, y- you mentioned sponsors. What sponsors do you have now and what segments or types of sponsors uh, might be really neat to pick up in advance of next year's ITI 1000? So one of the sponsors that I'm like just so grateful of is Sidero uh, Bags and mm-hmm. Spoken Gear Bike Shop in Two Harbors, Minnesota. So they made the bags for my bike. They're beautiful. Um, Those bags are beautiful. So yeah. beautiful. Yep. Yeah. Um, so Nick Carmen coined them Raspberry Dream. Mm. Um, so they were like a burgundy with gray. And um, they made a frame bag. They made panniers, which were custom sized. Because I told them, yeah, I want it to be about this many cubic inches. So they made uh, custom, like, you know, two panniers that were the size range I was talking about, plus a top two bag. And the handlebar bag, they... Um, adjusted that to fit my handlebars and some of the other stuff I had going on in my handlebars. And it's important to say that they, it's not just this race that they've done this, like they have been supporting us since 2017 when we did the tour divide. Mm -hmm. Like we, so when we were planning to do that event, we talked to them about bags for our bikes and they were just amazing to work with and like really supportive of what we were trying to do. And I mean, they've, They've been mm-hmm. supporting us on a number of events mm-hmm. since since that time. Mm-hmm. So this, we, this was not at all surprising that they like really hit it out of the park again. Right. And they do they make bags for people like if I wanted one, could I go oh, buy yes, one? Sure. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Top two bags. Okay. <laughs> and where would I find one? I'm sure Sidero.com. C E D A E R O dot com. Okay. Or they have a great shop in Two Harbors, Minnesota. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which yeah. is a great place to visit. Anyway. Yeah. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What segment of sponsor? So Sidero aside, and they're yeah. awesome. They were at your um, they were at your fundraiser up in Duluth. I got a chance to talk to those uh, guys quite a bit. Um, yeah. Is there sponsors that you'd like to pick up? Hmm. Uh, I mean, we an can apparel, edit anything out. By yeah, the way, yeah. an so. apparel sponsor. Oh, apparel. All right. Like one of like the who? like so <coughs> one of the like most appreciated pieces of gear that I had and actually even got compliments on is I had this wintergreen parka, oh. which was um, the red one, pa- hot pink. Yeah. Oh, it was hot pink. Hot pink. Okay. Definitely hot pink. Wait, that's not really the color you usually wear. No, I don't usually wear hot pink. <laughs> okay. okay, so this was a parka. That my mom bought when she was in Ely, uh, picking me up from Wedgewagon, somewhere in the early 90s. Uh-huh. And so then by the mid-90s, she was willing to, um, it was a hand-me-down to me, to the point where I, um, when I was a teenager, I had some uh, marble lights in the pocket mm. with a lighter, and she found <laughs> when it was in the front closet. 
So that's like how old it is, yeah. is when I was in high school with cigarettes in my <laughs> jacket. All right, all right. Um, that just, that's the age Got it. of it. Um, so, um, so this is a hot pink parka made by Wintergreen. And I started wearing it um, in the Arrowhead 135 in 2019 because I was like, this thing is huge. I can put on layers underneath it. It's this great, like windproof, waterproof layer. It does everything right. And so I've been wearing it in some of these winter bike races for the last few years. And like I said, it's from the early nineties. So we can do the math on how old it is and it is still in perfect shape. It hasn't Mm. worn out at all. Mm. Um, the only thing wrong with it is that the color is so retro <laughs> that it's embarrassing. But maybe that's even like no, back in style again. Cooler. Yeah. So, yeah. and Dre also wears a wintergreen parka, um, mm-hmm. which we you know we are saying more people who do these kinds of events should wear them because they're a great layer. Mm-hmm. They have a huge hood. Mm-hmm. What I like about it is when you get that crosswind, um, you're able to pull the hood over your face so the wind doesn't hit your face you don't need a fur ruff mm-hmm. on it because it has such a huge hood mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so outerwear apparel that's, yeah. that's a good segment yeah yeah like cook custom slow sewing winter, winter green, green. yeah okay yep. what about footwear like on my feet so we wore um 45 north wolfgar boots so it's mm-hmm. a, so we like to clip into our pedals aren't they a minnesota company they are yeah yes. owned by qbp quality mm. down in okay. bloomington right. hint hint Minnesota. Um, it's, it all comes from Minnesota. At one point on the Yukon River, I stopped and talked to the Italians. I said, you know all the stuff on your bikes is from Minnesota, right? You have like 45 North this, salsa that, terrine mm. this, like all head wheels. Like everything on your bikes is from Minnesota, mm. just in case you didn't That's know. That's actually really fascinating. I mean, like. Because they're from Italy. They think yeah. this is American stuff. Yeah. But I was like, no, this is all Minnesota. From where I am it's from. It's not Wisconsin. Yeah. It's not California, New- whatever. It's all Minnesota. Yeah. And, like, we all know the people who are behind all of yeah. these brands, too. Like, did you know that the guy who does Tureen used to be with 45 North? I mean, it's like, they just don't know. But it's all it's all from here. A lot of it's from here. Yeah. You have to look hard to Again, find something that's not from place. Minnesota. And, and now there's Otso, and there's, uh, I think Esker's got a new fat tire bike yes. in, the, in the mix. And yes. A lot of options. Yes, mm-hmm. options. there is. Yep. And that was one thing that was really cool going into this race with my bike is I was like, I want to have, you know, for like fat biking, some of the products are made in Alaska. You know, there are some like fat bike manufacturers in Alaska and, um, you know, pogies are made in Alaska. And so I was like, I want to have like a Minnesota bike because to be the kind of like Minnesota versus Mm -hmm. Alaska thing. So I was like, I'm going to have like a, like for Minnesota, I'm going to have like a salsa frame and Sidero from Two Harbors, Minnesota. Uh, frame bags and um, Onyx hubs and uh, the hubs that um, I got from Onyx were absolutely awesome. Um, I was like, I want to have like the Minnesota bike. And um, then at the last minute I had to get um, Nexty rims, which are made in China because mm. head doesn't make their hundred mil rims, hundred millimeter rims anymore. Hint, hint. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wish they could bring them back, but they kind of stopped before COVID and they're not in stock anywhere. So so I had to have the Chinese um, save the day rims and um, shamanic components. But other than that, it was like 100% Minnesota bike. Um, so the question is, there's a, um, a film mm-hmm. um, that I have been lucky enough to see. 
which was hilarious, which I wouldn't think that a film about a race um, would be as funny as it actually is. And it's so funny. Um, Can you both tell us a little bit about this film that you've both been featured in? Yeah, so um, we're here in Minneapolis this weekend uh, because it's the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, and they are screening uh, 40 Below which is a film made by uh, Marius Anderson, a filmmaker who lives in Duluth. Um, and Leah is prominently featured in this film. I have a couple small cameo appearances. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're, we were down to, um, to watch, the, watch the film, which is really a pretty fun experience to watch yeah, yourself on the big screen. Yeah, to see yourself like it's definitely a little weird this is the fourth time we've seen it so Mm -hmm. it's um it's a little less weird (coughs) the fourth time and it's actually really fun to to watch it multiple times like you kind of pick up on different details each time um so but yeah um we are here to for, for that and um it's weird to be a movie star like it's weird to like Walk through life as a normal person in the grocery store and on the sidewalk and just talk to people and like be like more or less ignored. Is it weird for people to ask for your autograph? (laughs) That hasn't happened to me. I don't know. (laughs) But then like afterwards, people are like coming up to you and asking you all these questions and like just so excited. I heard something about a standing ovation today. Oh yeah, there maybe was a standing ovation. Leah got a standing ovation, which is pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, I've never gotten a standing ovation before. So yeah, that's definitely weird. But it's been a really fun project to be involved with and a fun, like what I like about it is that it brings the stories and the characters of the Arrowhead 135 to kind of so many people who wouldn't otherwise have a window into that because like there are so many characters. I mean, that's one of the things, one of the things that I like most about it is like everyone there is unique in their own way and, um, and driven and in a lot of cases kind of off the wall and just kind of these interesting people um and yeah everyone is kind of motivated different each person has a different style um they're either trying you know most generally they're trying to go as fast as they can along the Iditarod or the Arrowhead Trail but um yeah they're all different yeah but I mean I feel like one of the things the the film spends a little bit of time focusing on which is you really experience as part of these types of events is like it is a race but yet everyone is really supportive of each other. It's this community of people that are kind of all doing this thing together. And, you know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to help out your fellow racers before worrying about, you know, am I going to get ahead of them or whatever? Like, for example, in the film, um, the the two leading guys on foot are together for a lot of the race. And they there's a little bit of discussion at the end about, you know, whether they were going to be competitive at the end and try to one of them was going to try to pull ahead of the other one and they say like no it wasn't really ever even part of the discussion like we had been together for many many hours and it was just obvious 30 miles walking you know we were going to cross the finish line together and that that is i to me is very like emblematic of the mentality people have in these events you know like in the iditarod trail invitational for you especially i mean you rode with this group and crossed the finish line all of you together mm-hmm. right and that was that was kind of the joke is like we got to the pavement and it was like fast 
and I've ridden on roads and I was just excited to go fast. So once we hit the pavement, it w- actually it was like, it wasn't really pavement. It was glare ice, I should say, but we had studs in our tires, tires, but we could still just like go super fast. And so I did that. And one of the guys, one of the Italians, Tiziano cut up to me and he's like, oh yeah, we're all going to finish. We're, we're all going to finish together. And I'll, he's like, you have to wait for the other people. I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. Like I know that. So we like pull over on the side and kind of waited for the others to catch up. And then, like, once they caught up, I was joking with one of the other Italians, Willie. I was like, um, I was like, hey, so when does the sprint start? Like, I'm, I'm ready to, to sprint to the finish. And he's like, no, we got to finish together. So, so it's kind of the Yeah, joke it's an interesting um, juxtaposition in these events because people are competitive to some extent. Like, they want to do well, and, and it's a race. But yet, again, you're going to... You know, you you are not going to have sharp elbows and Mm-mm. knock someone else out or whatever. Like no. you're gonna you're gonna help your fellow racers and, mm-hmm. and support each other. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a neat combination of competitive but supportive and cooperative. Mm-hmm. Cooperative amongst the group that you're in and trying to get the group that you're in to go as efficiently and as quickly towards the finish as you can. Cool. So are there other um, forty below? Are there other upcoming showings? You had mentioned one, like a West Coast showing. Yeah. So right now, um, so there was a sneak peek in late January, which was before the Arrowhead 135. And then now as part of MSPF or the Minnesota St. Paul International Film Festival, there were two showings initially. And then due to the fact that they both sold out uh, rather quickly, they added a third screening. Mm. Um, which I, I believe also showed, sold out. Yes. Yes, that was sold out. So third one was today, and, and I then they say, just announced. The, wait, to, oh. so the um, at MSPF was the world premiere of it technically because mm. the one in January was a sneak peek. So then today, today Jay, they announced that um, they will be having a fourth showing as part of the best of the festival. Cool. Um, so it's it's been one oh. of the most popular mm. films in, in the, the film lead, festival. It's the number one film at this point for like the uh, viewers' choice award. Mm. Right. Very so cool. it's it's going to have one more showing right after the festival ends. They do the the best of the festival where they they play the um, the most popular mm-hmm. film. So it's going to have one more showing here in Minneapolis, and then um, next up is hopefully what we've been told which hasn't been officially announced as there's going to be a west coast screening in early june um which as Dre part of a considering going documentary out film festival mm-hmm. so then the plan for and the where film was that? Where, where west coast all right generally west coast <laughs> yeah. all right North, northern Cal- northern california <laughs> uh, so if you if you watch uh we do this for fun on social media maybe there'll be yes. a post once that's been announced yes. totally so for those of you west coast folks you can see you know where it's going to be in the date and time um so we are considering going out to attend that festival so basically for the next 12 months the plan for the film is to enter it into festivals and then at some point in the future it'll be available on a um, streaming service but um but before that point, there'll be additional screenings in Minnesota. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you can get an opportunity to see this film, it's great. It's really, I I thought it was just going to be a film about like this race. And you 
find these characters very endearing and the stories that like have gotten them to this place and and then their experience on the on the trail Mm -hmm. just really it's really Mm -hmm. fascinating Mm -hmm. and really fun you know on that point if you're listening and you want to see the trailer uh go to we do this for fun.com and jody will post the trailer for 40 below andy will post (laughs) the trailer (laughs) Anyway, we'll make sure that you can see the trailer. So um, come to the website and take a look. And uh, we'll, we'll have a bunch of pictures up from Lee and Jure's trip, um, like the picture of uh, what the um, Aurora Borealis actually looked like, et cetera. So, so pop over to the website and check out uh, we do this for fun. Which, disclaimer, the Aurora Borealis photo. I mean, it looks really cool, but it was kind of, you know, it was taken with an iPhone, mm. taken out of a bike jersey pocket was kind of at, at 30 below yeah when phones so, don't work so well mm, and don't focus so well it was one of these moments where i was like i wish that i was here just to take pictures because i could do some it amazing stuff but right. we just cool. kind of snapped some iphone photos mm-hmm. they're still cool yeah. but nice I also just want to like say that if you don't really understand any of this, that's okay because I didn't either before I met this family. So this goes back to the roots of We Do This For Fun, which is sometimes you don't have experience like knowing what the Arrowhead 135 is or what the ITI is or whatever. And I have slowly gained um, interest, one, and two, like just like knowledge behind what these things are. Um, but it's accessible and mm-hmm. people are willing to share experiences and share little moments and will help you if you have like some kind of small interest in doing anything related to the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gruens will help you. Yeah, and that's <laughs> one thing that I have to say is like back to, you know, at the beginning, Jody said kind of it takes a village since Andy and Jody were watching our uh, dog, Atka. And I should say, dog. I mean, he's not just a dog. He's a three-year-old lab. He's an active young boy. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Full of energy and not necessarily so easy to housewatch. But, you know, I know that in my own experience, you know, there have been a, many, many people who have helped answer questions and help me along the way. And I'm always, if anyone wants to send me a like a DM on social media, I'm happy to answer mm. questions about like how to and you know, there's a Facebook group that is, you know, kind of based in the Twin Cities, Wild Winter Women, and it's for women who are interested in tackling some of these um, winter endurance events, either on uh, bike, foot, or skis. Um, and that's a good opportunity to ask questions and just kind of be with like-minded people. So um, there's a lot of resources out there and just a matter of tracking them down. Yeah, and like we were talking about earlier, I mean, it, you know, these are races people are they want to compete but at the same time i think anyone that participates in these events is happy to share tips and tricks and their their knowledge like you know we want to grow the sport yeah grow the the group of people that are Mm -hmm. doing these events do you do this for fun (laughs) you know most of the time it 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 is fun most of the time. Like we we talk about like the different types of fun. Like oh yeah, have you talked about that in you your know, podcast? The different types. We of fun? actually we've talked a type little different. Type one, different. type two, yeah. type yeah. three. Yeah. So okay. a lot of times these. Can you break ev- it down one, two, and three just for people who may have missed that? Yeah. So type type one fun is like it's fun while you're doing it <laughs> <Yeah>. and. <laughs> 
in retrospect. You know that it's fun at the time. It's clearly fun. Like, it's it's just fun. Like Disney World. It's like, you know it's fun at the time. It's it's a birthday party. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's just, it's fun while you're doing it. And then thinking back on it, you have no regrets. You're Mm. like, yeah, that was fun. Type (laughs) two fun is while you're doing it. It sucks. Yeah. You might be questioning like, wait, what? What am I doing here? But then thinking back on it, it's like, yeah, that was cool. That was really fun. So a lot of this, these types of events are like solidly type two fun. What's type three? Type three it's, is... It's never fun. <laughs> you get through it, it, it and sucks then like in the moment and then after like, the fact, God, you're like... No, I thought ty- no, type three is... You it's think it's fun at the fun time? Fun while you're doing oh. it, but afterwards you're like, no, that was not I, that I, was not I, a good idea. I have regrets. And type four is like, it's oh, not fun while four. you're doing it or God. after. You're just like... <laughs> not fun. It's like... <laughs> That was just yeah stupid. I would say the first 350 miles was type two fun. Yeah. Like it was really hard at the time. And then looking back on it, I was like, oh, that was blissful. That was so sweet to spend that time with Jeray. That was so fun. That was so cool. And then the next two days, I don't know, type two or four fun. Like it was just kind of pushing. <laughs> And then, like, from that point on, from when we saw Ian at Tolstoy Cabin, that was a turning point. So, like, the last, like, 550 miles was type one fun. Oh. It was, like, well, there were definitely pockets of type two mm-hmm. um, on the, like, I can think of pockets. But yeah, it was a lot of, like, this is fun and we know it right now and we're really appreciative that we have this type one fun. So, quick, before we, uh, before we wrap, um, and I'll, I will go Dre first and Leah second. Uh, one quick piece of advice for someone who's interested in getting into fat bike riding or winter ultra marathons or thinking about the ITI, which is, I mean, that's a super wide spectrum of, of interest. But like, what's one piece of advice that you would uh, bestow? So I would say if you... If you have an inkling that you want to try any of these types of events, and it doesn't have to be the ITI, it could be um, a shorter event, whatever it is, just you know, get out there and, and do it, try it, um, talk to other people who have done it. Like I think you'll find that um, people are very generous with sharing information and and um, ad, and advice and tips, and and I think you'll you'll be you'll be happy you you took the plunge and and gave it a try. And I I guess I second that, like going into the ITI, I had multiple two hour long conversations where I would contact someone who would, you know, either Ian or friends who had done the thousand mile race at ITI before. And I was just like, I need to pick your brain. And I asked them all the questions. The next thing I knew it was two hours long that I had Mm. taken of their time. Um, And so like, I think that people who, do these events are, you know, in the past they've been exceptionally generous. I'm willing to be um, similarly generous because I, you know, know how important that is for people um, to be able to get that amount of information um, in a directed way. Um, and uh, so in terms, if you, you know, can travel to the Midwest, there's a couple of events that are really good stepping stones to the Arrowhead 135, which... <coughs> which in itself is a good stepping stone to the ITI. And the first one is the St. Croix 40. Hmm. It's a 40 mile race in early to mid January up by Hinkley, Minnesota. Um, And so you're on uh, multi-use trails. Um, It starts 
in the late evening and uh, starts with you in your sleeping bag. And hmm. so the first thing you have to do is, when the gun goes off, you pack up your sleeping bag and, you know, pack up your whole kit, get on your, you know, bike or pack your sled or get on your skis and then start going and you have to go through the night because it starts in the evening. Hmm. Um, and in the past, I don't know if they still do this, there's a water boil where you have to uh, pull at your stove, boil water and you, you know obviously if you it takes like you a long time to boil water that just adds to your time right so it's in your best interest to boil water quickly um so that you can keep going um as part of the race i think you have to boil water before you can progress from that checkpoint huh. um so that's a really great you know kind of starter event and helps you hone your skills before enduring that and there's also the tuscobia race which is in rice lake wisconsin there's an 80 mile version of that and a 100 or a 160 mile version um so those are good things to do before you apply for the arrowhead 135 so i would say lean into the community that you have feel free to send me messages on social media or other people who you may know and um get all the information you can and then you know, when you go out, whether it's for training rides or during races, do everything that you can to learn from your past experiences, to hone your, you know, gear kit or just um, kind of mental list of skills. Perfect. All right. Well, Leah, Dre, thank you so much for joining. Been a pleasure. Uh, thanks, thanks for having so us. so much for talking. And um, don't forget to have fun out there. <laughs> yeah. For more information and to see the trailer for 40 Below, check out wedothisforfun.com. We Do This For Fun is supported by 515 Productions, a high-end video production business based in Minneapolis. The website is 515productions.com. And did you know that Jody is also a health and wellness coach? Check out her website at jodygruen.com. If you like this podcast, we'd love your support. Please rate and review us and hit subscribe. Learn more about us at wedothisforfun.com. As always, we welcome your questions and feedback. Email us at wedothisforfun at gmail.com. We'll be dedicating future episodes to answering your questions. So let her rip, whether it's about gear purchases or tampons and IBS in the wilderness. We do not judge. We promise we've been there, done that. Nothing is off the table. And thanks for listening.